From the studio of WHUP LP Hillsboro, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo. Over the next hour, together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, an expert by chance, a student by choice, composer, musician, guitarist, Skype enthusiast, Portis Hedian, Adrian Utley is with us. Welcome. Welcome, welcome back to Murmur. Welcome to Murmur for the first time. Hopefully not the last time. Uh, We have some important stuff to get to today. Uh, Before we do, go to our website, murmurradio.com. Email us. Let us know uh, what you think. Look at the shows we have coming up and... um, Ask us a question. We'll uh, we'll ask our guest your question directly if there's a guest and a question that that comes to mind. Um, we're socially we are at MSF Murmur at MSF Murmur. Those are all the handles: Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we're also going to be teaching some classes coming up, and we'll let you know about that and put it on the website. So go to MurmurRadio.com. We're also on iTunes. We are on Google Play and something called Stitcher. We're figuring out Stitcher. And as always, every week, right now, live, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on WHUP LP, Hillsboro. Great station. Great people. Welcome to Murmur. I always wonder what makes people learn, what, what makes people continue to learn, I guess, in, in our case. Uh, I, uh, I, was, I was a good student, uh, objectively speaking, metro, in terms of metrics. I, I did well in, in high school, not as well in college. Uh, different story for a different day, but I did well in high school. But I don't think I've learned as much as I currently own, take ownership over, uh, I didn't. I've learned more in in my in my adulthood than my childhood. This is not an uncommon idea. I I definitely maintain we go to school at the wrong time. But I wonder what motivates people to continue learning, uh, to continue to go back to school. Uh, but more so for today, what makes people want to learn on their own? Our guest uh, today is Adrian Utley. Adrian was part of the. Um, the brain stem of uh, Portishead, a really incredible group that is not over and done with. And we'll ask Adrian about when we could see Portishead again. But Adrian is also a lifetime learner. I have a, an incredible amount of admiration and wonder and, and curiosity over for and over th- those those of us, us whom continue to learn. Uh, it could be a crossword puzzle. It could be a. It could be uh, watching a. a a film and and learning that way it could be reading it could be uh, some sort of pure investigation i think the internet has done this sort of interesting thing we had a a writer from wired magazine uh, wired.com uh brian raftery interesting guy and he was saying that uh, one of the reasons tv is so popular right now is 
it reminds us of studying because we can do it in a concentrated form. We can do it on our own. We can cross-reference. We can have dialogue about it online. So one of the the charisma, the pieces of subterfuge around TV popularity is its resemblance to education and self-teaching. The 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 um, the realities of people continuing to learn and continuing to add to their tool chest. You know, I, I think what's interesting about that, most interesting to me, is it may never show itself. The The result of learning may never show itself. Uh, one can learn about birds, how to, uh, you know, different species of birds, and it only may have some... Uh, payoff in bird watching that's a sort of uncreative example but i think you know as we as we get older and our education where does it go what does it feed into because the vocational world is so full of realities as we get older it's the challenges of being of getting a job change so where does the information that we acquire over our adulthood lead and what does it do for us emotionally mentally uh what 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 does it serve? I mean, it serves many things. It serves vanity, and I don't mean uh, ego. Let's use the word ego, not vanity. It serves our ego. It serves our. It could help our job certainly if we have a job and we want to you know, figure out how to program or learn a language or learn a computer language or add add something to that repertoire simply out of utilitarian. Uh, motivations. I'm thinking more about people who learn because they're fascinated by something. And not that you can't be fascinated by a computer coding strategy or a language, but I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by people who are interested in learning simply because learning serves something in them. And what is that thing? I, I guess I tend to at times look at things in, in a slightly mercenary way or slightly jaundiced. Oh, you're learning this because it'll lead to something. But Putting that aside, why would someone learn something if they didn't know what the outcome would be or what the need would be? Is it simply to uh, give our lives an added measure of value, sort of self-value, self-fulfilling, self-worth? Is it the challenge? I mean, some people take it on because of the challenge and then leads to what, what does a challenge serve? Uh, so when, when inviting our guest today, Adrian Utley, I, I was interested in how much he's sort of learned and continues to learn and, and how interested he is in learning, whether it's a new instrument, a new programming language, a new way to engineer a record, and also something new maybe about music and music history, music genre. To answer that question, we can all answer it differently. Why do we learn? Or what is the value in learning? What is the worth in learning? Those words in and of themselves suggest a tangible outcome, but let's look at it intangibly for a moment. The, op the opposite of learning is what? That's sort of the question. So in answer to the question, that's the answer. In answer to the question, why does, we, why do, why does one learn or continue to learn? One need look only at the opposite. What is the opposite of learning? I don't know. I don't know that word. I don't know the word of the opposite of learning. But I can visualize it. And if I visualize the opposite of learning, it's, it's, a, it's terrifying. It's sort of, it's stasis. It's, it's solemnity. It's, um, or taken to a different example, it's, it is narcissism. <laughs> the implication that we would already know that which we need to know is a sort of form of narcissism. It's a it's a form of uh, it's a defense mechanism. Um, but I, I I guess for my life and for the people I've been able to meet through the show and through my work, I I don't tend to meet people who don't want to learn. So I can't quite picture that image or conjured that word of what it means to not learn or what it looks looks like to not learn or the opposite of of being a student is i guess the opposite of being a student is being an expert and 
who is to decide when we become an expert? A new film by Francois Truffaut. She was a bride when the violence happened. Now she's a widow, and it's going to happen again. Jean Moreau stars in The Bride Wore Black. The Bride has five names. Five men. To love. Hey, Adrian, it's Rob. Welcome to Murmur, man. Uh, glad to have you with us. Uh, thank you. Yes, good to be here. How are you enjoying Skype so far? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're in another country. It's quite weird, isn't it? Um, talking into my blank screen in my computer. Really odd. Well, what's what's worse, staring at a blank face or a blank screen? Uh, well, it's I'm staring at my emails and uh, talking to you. It's quite weird. <laughs> well, I'll keep the noise down to a minimum if you want to answer some emails. But no, in, in all seriousness, thank you, Matt. What are you involved in right now? I'm in a sort of I'm writing a piece of music with a friend of mine called John Parrish. Um, I'm always doing something, but I'm trying to take time out to write at the moment. And, um, you know, I've just been doing something for Sky TV, and there's all you know, there's always little things coming along. But I'm actually trying to just. Uh, take a bit of time out to do some writing. And what, what are you writing, if you don't mind me lifting the curtain a little bit? Oh, it's, um, I'm writing music. I'm also studying as well. It's been a long time since, well, I'm always studying, you know. I think every time I see something, hear something, there's an element of studying. I think there is for all of us, you know. Yeah. But I'm quite excited about the idea, because my main instrument is guitar, and then secondary to that, possibly the same now, is... Um, synthesis um so um and now composition so i'm studying composition and studying guitar more further and studying kind of deeper synthesis so um and within that trying to write for my guitar orchestra and my guitar quartet and some of the other projects that i'm involved in 
So you're you're a bit of a slacker, huh? Yeah, they, <laughs> two little kids as well, and they take up a lot of my time, being kind of vaguely single parent, you know. Well, well I, I, you said it right. You know, we tell our students that you don't need to be in a school to be a student. So I think that ethos is either there or is or is not. And obviously, it is with you. Now, from from what I've gleaned, your the the study you're embarking on is are, are classical compositions. Is that right? Are these sort of sort of pure in the sense of uh, is this classical music? What 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 form of of tutelage are, are you seeking? Well, it's yeah. I suppose it is classical in that world. I don't. I don't really come from a classical music background. A lot of my friends that I work with do, and I have great envy of their early information that they seem to pack into their brains when they were younger that I didn't get. I've I've been self-taught all my life through playing jazz, so I learned about harmony and extended harmony and substitution, and um, and but I never really, I never learned to read music very well. I find these these things. Uh, I need to study them a bit more to make, make to have the language a bit better. So it, it is kind of classical. I'm very interested in minimalist music, Steve Reich, um, etc. Philip Glass. Mm. Um, I'm I'm, in, I'm interested in the devices. So I'm learning about aleatoric composition, Penderecki, and you know a load of kind of things that I'm actually just discovering and really being excited about. Are, are, are you in a class or are you studying with a mentor or are you? I'm, I'm studying with a couple of people, um, sort of mentor mentors, not, not in a class at all. No. Um, there's a guy called Brian Irvin, who's a composer of opera from who lives in Scotland and I will see him in January. And then there's a very good friend of mine, um, Graham Fitkin, who's an amazing composer that I'm hoping to see next year. I remember having a guitar lesson in 1979 with John Etheridge, and I'm still practicing the things that he showed me. Oh, that's genius. Uh, that's brilliant. Yeah, you know, that's what it's like, isn't it? You learn, it, you can be told some things. For instance, last week or the week before, I can't remember when it was, I did a week of workshops, teaching workshops in Falmouth University, which is used to be the Dartington uh, College, which was a really fantastic um, arts theater musical place um and i was teaching 10 guitarists and also some production techniques to the or just general production and writing don't do this i do it probably once a year but the amount like that i learned yeah. just there talking about it with other people was fantastic you know so i'm i'm really excited to be in a sort of an educational uh frame of mind if you like um because I'm usually just outputting, yeah. and sometimes you just don't, you've got nothing left to give, you know, uh, really. You just need to put some stuff in. Joe Strummer used to say, and he would know, uh, no input, no output. You know, there's, there's a really great poem, uh, maybe I'll send you, I should send you, I will send you. It's called, They Ask Me Why I Teach. And right. the poem ends, um, it's a teacher to her students, and uh, the, I'm paraphrasing badly, but the poem ends uh, essentially her saying, I, they ask me why I teach. Uh, it's because you have been the most splendid company. And I always would add my own verse to that. And, and I teach so I can learn something. Uh, you know, I mean, we must keep learning, no? Or yeah. I mean, the, the opposite of that sounds ghastly, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm a huge um, advocator of learning always. And it's not just, it might be about cooking as well. I mean, you can never know. Right. right all the things and it's it's really exciting if you have an interest in it um there's things i couldn't you know astro astrology or uh, you know they they i'm not interested particularly but um so but the things that i am interested in actually no i'll i'll go back on that i think all things are interesting if you get the right information and have somebody telling you stuff that is enthusiastic um so um I just remember my teachers at school were pretty dull, a lot of them, so they didn't really <laughs> give you. Like, I never liked history, but now I'm really into history. Same and here. I'm, That's exactly the example I use. I'm, I'm fascinated by history now, and, and I had, I'd never been, truly. It's because the teachers at school, although well-qualified and obviously knowledgeable, were utterly dull <laughs> and boring, you know. Yeah. 
yeah well and, and I'm more self-motivated, so I don't really need the stimulus of a teacher, but it's great when you do have one who has some enthusiasm. It's good. We're, we're speaking with Adrian Utley. Um, Adrian, you know, it's funny, with your quote-unquote pedigree, studying Philip Glass is kind of a fun statement. Have you thought of reaching out to Philip? I mean, obviously not to teach you, but um, if you had a, let's say you had a question for Philip Glass or, you know, a living composer, certainly someone with your, your footprint as a musician, would that be interesting or would that be, would you shy away from that kind of opportunity? Well, both actually. Um, I, I do have a contact with uh, Philip Glass in that a very good friend of mine, a conductor, Charles Hazelwood. Yeah. Um, who who we, you worked with on Jean d'Arc, uh, Joan of Arc, I, correct? Exactly, yeah. Right. We, yeah, he came over to Lincoln Center as well when we did it there. And um, yeah, we work on a lot of projects. He conducts a lot of my guitar noise orchestration things, um, <laughs> which <laughs> which is great. Um, now he, he has a connection with Philip Glass, and I'm currently playing uh, with a guitar quartet, um, the Mishima Quartet uh, stuff uh, from the film. And... I'm slightly having trouble with it, not having the discipline. Um, and Charles is going to help me. And he did talk about Philip Glass, but I'm really not ready to, <laughs> right. to speak to him yet. I think he's amazing. I really do. And um, no, I'd be delighted when I feel confident enough. Same with a guy. Well, actually, with, with a lot of people. And I always find that when I do reach out to people that I really like, you've obviously got a connection in your brain with them and it's not a gratuitous kind of networking thing. Right. Right. Um, right. It's right. really, really interesting to meet them. And, and likewise, if anybody is remotely interested in anything that I'm doing and they come and talk to me, I'm very interested to talk, you know, isn't that cycle really fascinating? You know, the, the makers and the creators are, there are creators and makers who are before them and, and behind that, you know, there's this cycle. And I know a lot of, the artists who have worked with you, it's not an intim it's kind of this faux, not intimidation, but it's a, it's, you have so much respect for someone you wouldn't want to bother them. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I know perf- when you work, when these people have created meaning for you and you've done it for them. It's this beautiful cycle. I love how you're, not to comment on your age as such, but you're kind of right in the middle generationally, and I love that. You work with modern artists. You reflect you reflect and respect classical artists. You, I think it's wonderful, and I think that your your sensitivity to it is really rare and important. Well, that's very... Uh, I really don't know what to say about that. That's very, very nice of you to say those things. Um, I do... Um, I'm excited by... I'm excited by creativity, yeah. um, whether it be painting or music or I don't paint anymore. I used to art school and I used to paint, but I, I love paintings. I love um, create people's creativity, but my discipline is music. So it, it's a, it's a fantastic thing. When yeah. you work with perfume genius, actually working with Mike, he's such a massively talented man. Um, it was easy. You know what I mean? It was it was easy. It was like when I played with Mark Rebo, for instance, guitar player. Um, it was easy because he's fantastic. You yeah, know, um, yeah. and there's a and if you make a connection, I have played with other people where it was quite difficult, and they're amazing players because we didn't connect somehow. You know, but with the people when you do connect, it's an absolutely it's a joy. It really is, and uh, I think it's um, I feel very privileged to be part of that world and to be have respect from certain people is also a massive privilege because i remember what it was like when i first started and it was such a difficult thing to get going and yeah yeah. um, and i just didn't have the answers i didn't understand i didn't couldn't make the music correctly i couldn't i didn't couldn't in uh, i couldn't be in touch with my emotions in a visceral way through my instrument you know i remember it all being I need to do this because I'll do that and I need to do this and I need to do that. Well, now I never think that. I just think I want to do this and I'm going to do that. <laughs> right, right. That that filter, that, that that thing that questions your own question is gone. Now you simply have the question. <laughs> exactly. I, yeah. yeah. And, and for me, I have great joy and passion in the thing that I do. And um, 
you know, uh, it, it crosses all things and I will learn more. I'm always learning. So, you know, what year did you first visit the U S? Um, I think, I think it was 91. You said something wonderful about your visiting. You said, you know, you had visited, uh, paraphrasing, but that you had visited the U.S. through mov- through movies like French Connection. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, absolutely. And we, we'll talk about, I want, we'll go a little deeper with Taxi Driver and, and some guy named Bernard Herrmann. Um, but uh, let's talk about that, you know, the first images, because 1970s cinema it's like a documentary of New York and America in some interesting way. Do you remember those images, those first through film images of the, uh, of the U.S.? Yeah, I do. Uh, I used to watch a lot of films with my dad. My dad was really um, into films and was, um, you know, a big part of my kind of filming education, if you like. Um, you know, he certainly didn't know. Um, I don't remember watching. Well, I think actually in the 80s in England – the TV channels were really good. There was Channel 4 and some of the BBC used to run series of films. So you'd get to see a Fellini, series of Fellini or uh, Fassbinder. Interesting, or, interesting. Yeah, I mean, good programming, really good programming. We've lost that totally now. You oh, know, completely, you have completely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're all, now they're more available. Then, in 1983, when I might have been watching um, a Fassbinder film with my dad and going... Christ, this is intense. Um, I don't know who this guy is. What you know? It was an amazing. They were all amazing experiences. All the kitchen English kitchen sink sixties films that we used to watch, like Saturday Night Sunday Morning, Long Distance, Loneliness, The Long Distance Runner, all right. those films. Like, right. Series right. of that sort of stuff. Amazing. Well, you couldn't find those films. There weren't VHS shops. They were just starting to be in the UK and. There was no internet, so you couldn't find any information. It's the same with records. And, you you know, um, if I found out about John Coltrane in the early 70s when I was a kid, God alone knows where I could have found a record. (laughs) You you might have overdosed by now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly now, you know. But in those days, it was good to have – what I really liked was to have some, uh, you know, well-programmed TV stuff. Like Mark Kermode used to program for um, film, f- film four, I think it was called, and you know there would be good series of good films that were picked by somebody that knew what they were doing. Yeah, it so was sort of cura- curation, sort of a curatorial exactly. thing. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly, curation. So um, I saw a lot of films, and but yeah, Taxi Driver. Let's say about New York, for instance, the first time I went to New York which would have been 91, I was pretty, I was quite, I was terrified by it. It's such a <laughs> full-on experience coming from, you know, cities. I mean, I traveled a bit in the world, but not much. And I just found it, I think it's partly because of the American cinema is so powerful. You know, um, it's like Texas. I went to Texas and I kind of, you know, I could feel the same thing from that. Um, what's the Jeff Bridges Black and white, Bogdanovich. Oh, uh, last picture show, and actually, uh, Peter is going to be on the show next week. Actually, <laughs> yeah, because uh, well, Citizen Kane turns seventy-five this year, um, and he was, you know, he's a kind of cure, uh, caretaker of a lot of those secrets. But yeah, talk about going to Texas. I'm fascinated. What, what was your experience of Texas like? Because you know, last picture show is kind of a documentary on some level. But go on. <laughs> Well, I, I, cause yeah, it is actually. And I, you know, I absolutely love it. I really love Jeff Bridges as well. So I think he's, well, I don't think he's underrated cause he's, everybody does rate him, but he doesn't get, he's not often talked about. And I think he's incredible. I think he was great in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And, um, incredible. He's not, he's, he's not overrated, but I don't think we understand how lucky he's still with us in a way, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's so, I agree. so yeah. totally. Uh, yeah, 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 and it's a weird, it's a weird proposition. But anyway, I digress. I want to hear your thoughts about yeah, Texas. Yeah, Texas. Well, I, I just think I remember the atmosphere of that film as much as the fact that it was shot in black and white. You know, um, uh, I remember going to, I think it was Austin. I spent quite a lot of time, and this would have been ninety one. It's quite different then than it is now, and sure. still yeah. not the same as it would have been in the seventies or the eighties. But um, I I hear that it's kind of yuppies film now. uh, It is, but you were there around the time of Slacker. If we want, because I tell time based on movies. I mean, I'm not talking about the time of day. I'm talking about what year we're in. So you know, when you when you say uh, Austin early 
early 90s, I think of Richard Linklater. And it is that raw energy because by the early 90s, Taxi Driver New York was gone. But Taxi Driver energy, like if you go to Rio, Rio de Janeiro now, that's like Taxi Driver. You know, and that's not a pejorative. I'm saying it is interesting how the sands of time and culture they they they're like a salad bowl that just keeps tossing itself, so to say. But yeah, I think so. And and when I went to Austin, I felt I felt a little bit of the old there um, in the early nineties, and so and I discovered Lefty Frizzell, who I knew from. I'd heard the name from um, Last Picture Show because the radio was on, and it was all great old country music um it's all it's all source sound that movie is all so i mean not to interrupt your story but your story is too interesting not to keep interrupting it i apologize but that film like american graffiti that's all diegetic source sound but anyway go on my friend yeah absolutely which i think is is great um a great way to do it like easy rider was possibly the first that did that i don't know but um yeah, and so for me, when I went to Texas and I stopped in truck stops and I bought a Lefty Frizzell cassette that we played in the van or I played on my Walkman, I just couldn't, I was kind of completely taken up by the romantic romanticness of that and the kind of, I think American history is fascinating to me. Uh, the more I learn about it and the more I cherry pick really those things. Um, yeah, and I went to, when I was in Austin, I went to a place called The Broken Spoke Mm. that um what's his name williams uh country singer um hank williams hank williams and all the and they had like a they had a kind of um museum of you know bob wills's hat and lefty's boots and you know what i mean that <laughs> yeah, sort of yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. and photos yeah. of them and stuff and old texan families going to do country dancing they weren't even looking at the band the band were kicking you know and um they were just there to dance and it was it, you know it's a bit of a a bit of an eye-opener for me it's like a back into a another world kind of thing um well you, we, we've lost that as well you know the film as a kind of time machine in the sense of travel because you know the world is so closer so much closer now you know watching a Fassbender film or a Vim Vendors film or a Wong Kar Wai film you know yeah. for many of us that was those were our first experiences of Germany or Berlin or China yeah. you know now it can still transport us temporarily in the sense of we can be back in 1968 Paris but a lot we're, we're you know all of us are so damn worldly now and, and that's a good thing obviously there's but but i think you're right it has dented the art or it's changed the the, the use of the art or the art as a tool in a sense um it, it certainly has yeah i think it has and I, I it's um but i also wonder that maybe we're missing i don't know whether it's a, a byproduct of getting older and knowing more stuff but mm. maybe we're missing the Maybe we're missing the essence of what ha- is happening now uh, by pining for the old, in a way. I, I wonder, you know, I go to Paris now and I think, oh, it's not like it used to be. I go to New York and think, oh, it's not like it used to be. I suppose I'm thinking of it because I saw Taxi Driver and, uh, you know, um, Midnight Cowboy and all, all, all and, the sorts and, of and, 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 When you saw Taxi Driver, and I will quote you directly here, uh, speaking with Adrian Utley, don't get scared, this is a good quote, that you saw Taxi yeah. Driver in 1979, you were in Leeds, um, and yeah. you saw it on a double bill, and I think this is what I'm fascinated by, you saw it on a b- double bill with Midnight Express. Yeah. Man, that's deep. That's <laughs> Did you have a trench coat on? That's a deep dive. <laughs> it was pretty deep, yeah. Um it was well, Leeds at that time, 79, Leeds, England, grim as you like. Well, for me it was. It was colder than where we came from in the Midlands, which was not that far away, but and there wasn't much going on. There's a lot of poverty there. Um Loads of people are going to get back to me about this from Leeds and say what a cool place it was. But for me, visiting that time, playing in some really crappy working men's club, right. playing right. music I didn't want to play, but I was playing with my friends. It's just a way of surviving and making money and touring these brutal clubs. Um, and in the day, we went to went to the cinema probably half of us from the band probably four of us three of us and we watched that and all of us remember it as an experience um i think midnight express 
is a great film. Just it's it doesn't hold up as well. It's kind of dated in a way uh, compared to Taxi Driver, which is so classic, so absolutely forever um, on all levels. Um, but at that time in 79, it was so harsh to see both those films together. I couldn't believe... And my experience of seeing Taxi Driver was I knew nothing about Martin Scorsese or Robert De Niro or any of the people. I just had heard that it was a violent film. Um, and that was my, and all, you know, so the whole afternoon and we saw it in the afternoon because we were playing in the evenings. Um, none of us could speak when we came out and I don't remember the music particularly. I don't remember it, but I remember I would have absorbed it and it would have had an extreme impact on me, you know? Well, well, what's interesting, a couple of things, uh, so much of that is interesting, but I love the fact that you saw it in 1979 because it came out in 76. And it's, it, again, it, that shows you another reality of things that have changed. We try to get things out as quickly as possible, but then there were all sorts of red tapishness around this sort of stuff and distribution platforms. So it's interesting that you actually saw it because this year it turns 40 this year, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, and another thing about that double bill um, that came out of it, which made me think of you, Does tell me if this rings a bell. Can you hear that? No. It's the... Well, let me tell you what you're hearing. You're not hearing. You're not hearing the the sound, the the score to Midnight Express, which is uh, Giorgio Moroder. I don't know. Moroder, I remember it well. Yeah. Yeah, that dum 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 dum. I'm singing it badly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But he's interesting. You know, doing doing some work on us, doing some digging into Giorgio because I think. Not that you know you and Giorgio haven't had similar, but he was experimenting a lot with sound and yeah. soundtracking and disco and and those kind of mutations. And it's interesting not to sidetrack on Giorgio, but he also did the song. He wrote the song "Take My Breath Away" for Top Gun. Did he for Berlin? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and if you well, that doesn't surprise me actually. I didn't know that, but that doesn't surprise. Exa- me. That's exactly how I felt. And yeah. another thing that didn't surprise me, if you want to sound cute at a cocktail party, which I don't per se, is he <laughs> wrote, he wrote a uh, flash dance. What a feeling! Um, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> less charming he caused me quite a lot of misery then in the 80s because um i used to have to play that when i played in holiday camps <laughs> at least three times a day and i was sick to death of that tune well i'm sorry we ever mentioned this bastard but you know just to, just to close the circuit because i do want to talk about bernard herman with you and we're speaking with adrian utley so graciously giving us some time during a busy time for him two of the projects you've done and this is would be the last chapter of our talk but i'll, I'll reference it now you know talking about joan of arc which you know talk about yeah. taking on the gods of sound did you know or that dreyer actually intent carl theodore dreyer intended that as a silent film silent silent film um, yes i did know that i did know that yeah have you ever seen but, not to completely jump the the lily pad here have you ever seen the film without any sound yes yeah yeah the first time i watched it with will uh we watched it silent um, because we wanted to see all the films that we were considering uh, to watch, to, to work on. Uh, my friend Mark, who you know, Mark Cosgrove from Watershed, right. Right. Um, gave us his cinema for a couple of days, well, you know, in the day when there was nothing happening, and, and got hold of some films. And, yeah, we watched it the first time silently, and it was great. It really was. And... Um, but he's not around to argue. So. No, I, and, <laughs> neither is Joan. <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't mean it as a, an incrimination. I meant it um, as a, as a as a piece of subterfuge to see that film without sound. Like, what is it? It brings into the question: What is a silent film? A silent film is not a film with music. You know, we we we've co-opted this idea. You know, and I always found Dreyer's insistence on not insistence. I think, frankly, I hate this expression. But if he were alive today, I think he would have his ears would orgasm at what you guys are doing. I think it's extraordinary. I guess my 
Well, I, I do, and not that I knew him, but I guess my point is, but he, and he's Danish, so who knows? But um, my, my point is, the film is an hour and a, hour and twenty something minutes. You would know better. It, it is in the way that we do it, but I think that it should be run slower. That's see the whole world of silent. I'm oh, sorry, I've interrupted you. No, no, I was just going to say, if you watch it without sound or any ear ear assistance, it feels four hours long. Why should it be? Long, slower and longer. Tell me about that. That's interesting. Well, I, th- I mean, the silent film world is 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 a world very much unto itself, and it's extremely. It can be quite closed, and I have found since we did, um, Joan of Arc, Will and I, and you're t- just for people listening, I, you they probably know, but Will Gregory uh, is the Will you mentioned. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. Will Gregory from Goldfrap and many other. Uh, cool things. We've known each other for 30 odd years and worked on loads of projects. I played on most of the early Goldfrap albums, for instance, and he he has played with us with Porter's Head um, either live or on the last record he did saxophone solo. Um, so, yeah, the silent film world is a giant world and it's also kind of caught up in history and opinionated people yes. as well as more forward thinking people. So, um, I think that there's uh, there is a version that's like 120 minutes long. To me, it looks like it's underwater, you know. Um, mm, but there are people that would say that is the correct speed that Dreyer wanted it at. I don't know? get caught up in that. I think that is BS. I mean, in the sense that I think film people can be like snobby librarians. And I think maybe that's yeah. that's the reservoir you speak about. I, I hate that type of film uh, reverence. It's 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 vanity. It's 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 uh, narcissism. It's not love. It's narcissism. Yeah, I think so, because I I found it difficult, difficult to watch it at that speed. And I didn't watch it at that speed. Actually, I watched it for a bit. It's funny talking about Peter Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich said when he first saw Psycho, he actually saw the New York premiere of it. In um, 1960, of course, and obviously the history books have told us that Hitch and, and Bernard Herrmann for the shower scene was to do it without sound. When Bogdanovich saw Psycho in New York in 1960, now this is interesting, I'd love to get your response to it. The shower scene, people screamed so loudly during the shower scene that you couldn't hear the music. So uh-huh, that's interesting. in that moment, Bogdanovich said, that's why Hitch thought there should be no music here. So it's interesting. A couple of, of these motivational pieces are interesting that Hitch was on to something that he may have changed and, and probably for the better ultimately. But isn't that interesting how silence and sound and placement becomes its own chemistry experiment was there not even like a glimmer of the sound before people started screaming because it's pretty horrific that um and i just wonder if it sparked up if you only need to hear a couple of seconds or even half a second of that those violins before you just go oh my god and then start screaming i think that's right and you know if if memory serves the way when the sound comes in the curtain is pulled and the first thing you hear is that eek now the yeah, funny you, thing it's not it's not stabbing yet. Exactly. You know? And it's not necessarily a sound. It could be a scream. In the yeah. sense of if we want to be really nerdy about it, you could mistake that for her scream because you see her open mouth. So the the vo- oh, don't know it that well. The sharpness of the violin. I guess my point is the muddiness, your point about could you have heard there's still enough ambiguity. And anyway, that's that scene in general and Bernard Herrmann. I know Bernard talking about Taxi Driver and is is no. someone you've admired. Um, yeah, I think he's I think that that um, I think that that score for Psycho is phenomenal. And many people I mean, it's not there's nothing there's nothing hidden about that. That's, you know, it, <laughs> yes. you're a genius, I think. And we all know that he didn't, you know it was going to be a TV thing and all that stuff. And, you know, they all the, and likely didn't want this music for that scene and stuff. But I think it's absolutely unbelievably brilliant. I think the overture when she's, I don't know what they call the pieces, but there's a, there's a main theme when she's driving towards the hotel and it's dark and it's extremely ominous. And there's this beautiful, oh, that's my phone, hang on a sec. Um, um, it, it didn't sound like that, though. That was your phone. That wasn't Bernard Herrmann, correct? No. That, <laughs> <laughs> that, um, so, um, yeah, and I think it's amazing. The same with Taxi Driver, which yeah. was his last score, um, I think is 
you know, it's it, there's a there's a there's a kind of master at work when you hear that music. Yeah. Very you know simple. Even the kind of the, the the cheesy kind of saxophone tune, the theme, the woman's theme. What's her name? Betsy is her name. Sorry, Betsy's theme. Yeah, Betsy's or something. Betsy's. It's called that thing. Yeah. Um, you know, and all the orchestration, the kind of choice of colours, these are the things that um, I'm hoping to learn through my composition lessons. And I, the, these things are all lessons for me, you know. Um, the way he used a massive bass drum and it just the the quality of the sound and the and the juxtaposition of instruments was just brilliant. It wasn't in the way that in Psycho, I mean, there's millions of scores. I don't know them all that, you know, as deeply as Psycho and, say, um, Taxi Driver, you know, North and Northwest and Spellbound. Yeah. It's the fact that he used in Spellbound a theremin and um, I think he used... Um, well, he, he also scored The Day the Earth Stood Still, which has theremin still. in it, which is yeah. quite quite beautiful bernard herman passed away during uh he never saw the film i think i think he no. he passed during post-production and marty Squ marty uh, martin scorsese said the last three words he said that herman said to uh, scorsese were play it backwards <laughs> and he he <laughs> never quite understood and i always i always think that's almost like rosebud you know <laughs> what did what did he mean <laughs> He could have just been screwing with Scorsese, but I love Scorsese. He says those were the last three words he said to me, play it backwards. Yeah, it's it is really intense. Well, I have not so much experience of working with directors and things. I do. I have done film work and hopefully do more. But I, I, I think the language that you use, I think it's like any, I think any form of, you know, communication is, it should be based on, um, not you trying to show your knowledge to somebody else. I think it's all about communicating. And it doesn't matter if you say, I want it to sound, if you make up your own words, it doesn't matter as long as you all understand what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think in, um, in terms of um, making records and stuff, sonic palettes are really important because I especially think that now because we've got so much available to us um you know i love i love say somebody like john carpenter well he did have quite a lot of equipment we think now he did he had quite a rudimental very small amount of stuff but for the day if i think back to those days the amount of synthesizers he had was fairly unbelievable you know um <clears throat> but i see it now as a kind of limited palette if you like he had a lindrum and he had a couple of things and he had a mini move and he had an oberheim and a, you know and um and this made this sound um and so it's a sonic palette and I, i'm a massive believer in that and it will come from people like bernard herman like i was saying about the taxi driver score and the fact that psycho never had it was orchestra, but it was only the strings. Yes. There was no percussion. There was no brass. Hitchcock was asked, "Why did you just use strings uh, in the soundtrack?" Um, Hitch said, "Because we wanted to play the audience like a violin." Um, really, that sounds that sounds like Hitchcock being a smart ass, doesn't it? It does. Well, you know, it's funny. And, and again, the next time good. the next time we talk, we're going to start with Bernard Herrmann and talk for about five hours because I okay. tell you, there's something. That that relationship became very bitter. Talking about um, sour uh, sour times, um, it became very sour. And Hitch and and when Tor I'll just put a coda on it. Then I want to ask you one other question, and we'll let you go. Adrian Utley th has been amazing. Thank you, man. When I come to London, I'm going to be there in the spring. I'm gonna. I'd love to come visit, and we could just chat like proper gentlemen instead well, of <laughs> the Skype interface and you can show me what a real scone is but um yeah I'm quite digging it though actually I think it's good <laughs> we may name <laughs> this just in we may never see Adrian Utley in person again <laughs> he no, has become a one but um yeah. so th they had become such adversaries uh during Torn Curtain which was a soundtrack that Bernard Herman wrote and Hitch replaced it the studio hated it. He had hated yeah, yeah. it. Frenzy. No. Well, Frenzy, Frenzy was Henry Mancini. Frenzy was Hen Henry Mancini. 
Okay, I know. Yeah, torn curtains. Sorry, yes. It's okay. But sorry, a quick thing about Henry Mancini. Henry Mancini was hired to do Frenzy, and they scrapped the soundtrack. And Hitch was asked why, and he said it sounds too much like Bernard Herrmann. Yeah. And anyway, (laughs) just to finish the story on torn curtain. They they approached during when when the process was ongoing. They approached um, Ber, Ber, Benny Benny Herman Bernard Herman to do uh, a pop song, and that's what was happening in the soundtracks too at that time. There needed to be a song, a single, yeah. and I'm sure yeah. you've heard that before. Um, and yeah. Bernard Herman refused to write one, and he said Hitchcock only finishes a picture sixty percent. I have to finish the rest for him. So wow. oh. yeah, it's. That was a bloody one. Uh, yeah. That, that sounds like war. Uh, that sounds like the end of a relationship, doesn't it, in a way? Author's... Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the estate of Bernard Herrmann calling, saying... See, yeah, yeah, they got me. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> it's my phone going. I think, um, I think the, the fourth album that you guys do together will be um, Skype sounds and an iPhone. Um, but, that's great. <laughs> You know, my constituency won't let me get out of here without asking you a couple of um, one really couple of really uncreative questions about Portishead. Um, when did you all put your heads to doing a song for the High Rise soundtrack? You and, and um, the Portisheadians. Well, Ben Wheatley got in touch with us to do something with him, and Jeff has gone on to work with him on another thing. Um, we he had SOS. Clint Manser was doing the score. Um, and there are other versions of SOS in the in the film, so they Ben wanted us to do a version of it, so we did, um, and that's it's that simple that we just did that. How did, and how we, did, how did that feel? Uh, talk about a less interesting follow up. Was that fun and invigorating? Uh, we really enjoyed doing it. Yeah, I really like it. Um, it went past quickly, um, and it happened easily. It's a great song. Uh, our challenge was to get rid of the chords, the brilliant chords that Abba had written, mm. and just keep the melody and the words and reharmonize it and make it heavy and um, in no way optimistic kind of thing. <laughs> the first thing we do is take all the optimism out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has that really brilliant Abba writing where it's... Yeah hanging on the edge of pathos and sadness right uh, but it also has a sort of vaguely uplifting feeling about it which is them they're they're genius they're master you know they're masters of doing that they're great 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 songwriters those tone the tone the tones they created and you're right because their songs are anthemic they're (laughs) anti-anthemic you know they have a sadness to them which i think is you know a true well it's what makes mo- a lot of this if it was just saccharine songs we wouldn't they wouldn't last and they wouldn't a lot of us wouldn't dig it you know whereas right. a lot of people do like abba that you wouldn't think like abba i you know I think- steve coogan so i think legitimately loves abba i mean he's always dropping yeah. abba and but i think it's because you know the winner takes it all in waterloo is a great song i mean finally meeting my waterloo that's the end i mean that's it that's the end <laughs> You, they they sang that in the trip, didn't they? Did you see that? Yes, um, uh, the winner. T- oh, I love that. I love that. Um, and also, he did the um, "Knowing Me, Knowing You," ha ha. Yeah. You know, which is a cool yeah. thing. Um, last thing, because you you've screwed us up. You know, third is such an amazing man. I'm telling you, I was listening to that record um, all week, and it's a uh, talk as if you're not here for a second. It's an incredible album. I mean, it, it's an album out of time. It's an album that is as crisp and clean, and it's it's as unpredictable. To me, that's the genius of any film. I don't want to know what the next scene is going to be, and I think your gift as a trio was always each track. You didn't know what the next track where it would live and where it would come from. So I wanted to say that as a for a gush for a second, but um, so I really and. um, Well, just say it's almost eleven years since that one, and there was eleven years. Well, between two and three, there were 11 years between Portishead and third. So what are we thinking? 2019? When are we thinking for number four? I I can't even do those maths. It frightens me to death. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, let's split it. Let's split it in half. You know, I, I'm just saying it was it was such a great time. You know, it sounds like you all are still connected and musically and, and yeah, most, we, 
Yeah. We are connected. And yeah, just say a year and we'll try and make it so. Okay. Okay. So next next year at this time, I'll be in England. We'll do something live um, and we'll talk and, you know, maybe it'll be two other people on stage with us. But I just want to say, man, you're a true gentleman. You and I have been corresponding and, and you've always been gracious and I know how busy you are and I know you have phones and a lot of, and I'm surprised the fax machine didn't go off during this conversation. I don't have one anymore. The, the, thank, thank goodness for small favors. Adrian, I wish you nothing but the best, my friend, and let's catch up again down the line. Yeah, man. Take care. That was really cool. Yeah. Cheers, mate. Be well. See ya. Ah, Skype. It sounds like he's not quite on the phone and he's not quite with you. He's kind of in a a, um, a long corridor uh, with wooden floors and always a little bit out of reach. Uh, we want to thank Adrian Utley, uh, another Skype convert. Um, <clears throat> pardon me uh, for being here with us today. It's... um. I was thinking more about this learning. He, uh, Adrian said, um, you know, about going back to school with knowledge. Isn't that a beautiful concept, knowing something and then going back deeper versus this sort of tabula rasa? And I think that um, that's Adrian. You know, it's not like he's starting with a blank canvas when he learns classical music. He knows the baseline vocabulary and is going deeper. It, it reminds me of, I have um, friends who live in Brazil uh, who speak Portuguese, of course, and uh, many people uh, who speak Portuguese and are born in Brazil or Portugal, and and it's such a complex language, and frankly, such a gorgeous language. It's amongst the most complex languages to learn. Therefore, knowing it, native speakers of Portuguese go back to school to learn it in a more robust way. And we're not talking about young people going back and learning. We're talking about people who have been speaking Portuguese all their life lives. They go back and they learn to peel away more layers of, of the language, which is an extraordinary idea. When you think of in the U.S. teaching, we have, we have a, I think Americans preternaturally have a kind of allergy towards learning new languages, but typically the, the chronology is when you're in school, high school, earlier, but let's locate high school, uh, junior high, for many people, young people learning their first languages. Knowing English is a baseline. You can learn German and Spanish and French and Latin and all the usual Spanish and all the usual suspects. But, you know, consider being in high school in America, in the U.S., as an English speaker and learning English. Now, English is a subject, obviously, that we learn in school, but the language, and yes, we take grammar and that word phonics, which I'm convinced or I'm not convinced is really a word. So there are those sort of satellite, uh, you know, it's like peanut butter. It's sort of spreading peanut butter on top of something you already know tastes delicious. Peanut butter is just going to make it even better. That said, you consider being in high school and taking an English language class. I wonder where you would go and and in the sense of the subject matter, where would you really plunge in, in the, the, the sort of the, the curriculum? Where would you start knowing that the kids have a baseline of English? Um, so Portuguese, conversely, is a language that, that many native speakers go to school to learn because of the undulating, the continuing rule system and, and linguistics of it. It's beautiful. I think it's a, it's the highest compliment to a language that you can keep learning it. Uh, and I think it's the highest compliment to pay someone to call them a student. Uh, next time we meet, we're going to talk about Orson Welles, who liked to consider himself an amateur. And we'll, con we'll cover why, but that was one of his favorite words. So, on that same token, one of my favorite words uh, is student. And as a teacher, I consider myself a student of, otherwise I wouldn't teach. We wanna, we wanna thank 
Adrian Utley for being with us via Skype. We want to thank Skype, the software, just because it's a cool thing. <laughs> anyway, we want to thank you. Go to our website, murmurradio.com. Email us, murmurradio at gmail.com. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in every week. WHUP, LP, Hillsborough. See you soon.